Amen. Thank you, Austin. So, again, good morning. Our scripture passage today comes from Psalm 95. I almost didn't get that right. That's interesting, isn't it? Psalm 95, we are in a series where we're working through some of the Psalms. And uh, this morning we come to Psalm 95, and we're going to read the entire thing. It is 11 verses, and so it's printed for you in your worship folder. Uh, it'll be on the screen behind me, and if you're at home, it's on your screen as well. But if you'd like to turn there in your Bible, that'd be great. Or uh, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you if you'd like to pick one of those up and turn very quickly. Psalm, Psalm, 1, Psalm 95, let's begin uh, together in verse 1, where the psalmist sings. O come, let us sing to the Lord... Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture. In the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as, in, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. It's quite an abrupt ending, isn't it? That's on purpose. Nevertheless, this is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. As I said, we're in the middle of a series going through some of the Psalms, and uh, I decided to include Psalm 95 because it describes something that I think is common. These people that the psalmist is talking about here, the Exodus generation, that first generation of the Israelites that were brought out of Egypt from slavery there, they saw God do amazing things for them. But it says, even so, very quickly in fact, and if you read that part of the scripture, it really is shocking as you see it happen, very quickly they became rebellious. They grumbled constantly. Their hearts, it says, kept going astray. And as I said, you read that story in Exodus and through the Pentateuch, and you really, you just can't help but think, what is their problem? And really what we're meant to think when we read through that story is, wow, they are a lot like me. What's my problem? I mean, what is the problem? How is it that we can see God do such amazing things and in such short order find ourselves so out of whack spiritually? Well, we're told very clearly here, and that's why I wanted to include this because I think it's so important. It says here in verse 9 that though they saw God's works, in verse 10, they did not know his ways. And that was their problem. They saw his works, but somehow they still did not know his ways. And that's really what I would like to talk about with you this morning. God's works are his actions. God's ways refer to his character, to his person. So works are what God does. Ways are who God is. They, these people, they saw what God had done, but they did not know him personally. So it says they tested him. Their hearts became hard. 
And the same thing can happen to you and me. In fact, it does. I've seen it so many times. What God does, what he doesn't do, it can become very confusing and hard to understand. We are just too small. We are too limited to comprehend it all. And we can't always know exactly what's going on and what God is doing, but we can, despite whatever might be going on, know who God is. There's a verse that Ashley and I come back to often over the last number of years, especially in times of struggle. And it's in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. It says this, The Lord, God, he is a rock. Listen to this. It says, His works are perfect, for all his ways are justice. Do you see how that verse puts those two things together? God's works are always perfect. Even when I don't understand, even when I don't like what he's doing, even when it seems to be going sideways very quickly, his works are always perfect because his ways are always justice. Faith connects God's works to his ways to help us endure even when we don't understand what it is that God is doing and why we have to be going through what it is we're going through. And so I have a question for you this morning as we come to this text at the risk of again being labeled a fanboy let me say this almost 75 years ago C.S. Lewis observed 75 years ago a profound change in the way people related to God he said previously a person typically would approach God as a person accused would approach a judge but he noticed that it was turning and that now it seemed that man sat on the bench and that God was in the dock if that was true 75 years ago, how true, of it, true is it uh, of our time and place today? So here's my question. In your mind, which is it? Who judges who? Who, who, is, who is in the judge's place and who is in the dock? Is it that God judges you or is it that you judge him? That's an important question to consider. And I know you know the answer, but I'm not asking like the answer. Like search your heart. Like what's the operating system of your life say about how you answer that question? That's really what this psalm is about. And Psalm 95 contrasts two very different ways of life, two very different approaches to God. The first, we're told, is there's a danger that, like these people, we might develop a hard heart testing God's works. But instead, the psalmist is trying to lead us to a place of deep rest where we're trusting God's ways. So we can live with hard hearts that test God's works, or we can follow... The advice here of this psalmist leaning into what we know to be true of God and find a deep rest that, re that comes from trusting all of God's ways. See, when you test God, you measure his ways by his works. To trust God is to measure his works by his ways. It's going to get a little confusing this morning, so you've got to hang in there with me, okay? But that's what we want to talk about. So first, let's look together. First... I want you to see how the psalm shows us that we can live with a hard heart that constantly tests God's works. Though Psalm 95 offers a strong warning, look there at verse 7 and 8. Today it says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my works. Now there's some historical context that is important here. Those two locations mentioned there, Meribah and Massa, they actually refer to the same scene in the Exodus story in Exodus chapter 17. Israel, as I've already said, had seen God's works. He had miraculously rescued them from Egypt. They were, 
They, there were plagues. They had seen these things unfold. They had heard the screams from the households of Egypt as the firstborn sons died. They had walked across the sea on dry ground with walls of water on both sides. They went a few days into the desert, just a few days beyond all of those miraculous things that they had seen, and there was no water there, and immediately they began to put the Lord to the test. Now, it's very important that we understand this because it is a significant thing in the spiritual life. I know that because Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And all, in most of the synoptic gospels, you have this scene of him going out into the wilderness. Three temptations. And one of those three was a temptation to put God to the test. Jesus responded by quoting from Deuteronomy 6, 16, which we read earlier, that says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So this is a really big deal. It's why we felt like we needed to spend a week talking about this, okay? But how are we to understand what exactly the psalmist means by this? Well, the parallelism of verse 9 is helpful. If you look there at verse 9, again, it says, Your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof. Now, quick lesson again. A feature of ancient Hebrew poetry was to couple lines. You would say something in the first line, and then you would say it again in the second line, but in a slightly different way. And the feature there, the second line, explained the meaning of the first line or expanded the meaning of the first line. It was a way of saying something twice in a different way so that you got a fuller meaning of exactly what was being said. So in verse 9, putting God to the test there means putting him to the proof. What does it mean to test God? It means that you're demanding that God prove himself to you by doing something for you that you want or need done. You put God on trial. You say... I know we have a long history. I've seen some things, but I'm still not sure about you. Prove it. Despite all that God had done for these people, they still didn't believe the way they should, and they put God to the test. Now, in Matthew 4, in that text, Satan took Jesus up to the observation deck of the Empire State Building, and he said, I got an idea. You keep saying that God is worth being trusted and being obeyed. Well, here, here's the thing. Why don't, we, why, don't, why don't you throw yourself off? God will save you, right? I mean, throw yourself off. Let him come to your rescue. And so here's the temptation. Satan was saying to Jesus, act and then trust God. Decide on a course of action. And then once you've decided, then call God in to come through for you. Now, that is not faith, see? That's a demand. That's treating God like a genie who exists to fulfill all your wishes. Jesus refused to jump and then trust God. He trusted God in the decision to jump. He refused to act independently of his father, knowing that to do so would have been to put him to the test. Now, let me say this another way. To test God is to measure his ways by his works. To evaluate his character by his action or in some cases, is inaction. I have a childhood best friend years ago. We had a bit of a falling out. Um, don't worry. You don't know him. It's none of you. I'm not talking about any of you secretly in the room, okay? <laughs> I'm like, I wonder if that was me. No. So uh, we, had, <laughs> we had known one another our whole lives, very, very close, and we had trusted one another. And at one point, um, I made a decision that he uh, did not agree with, that hurt him. And, uh, and I was prayerful. I was slow. 
I agonized over it. I was motivated by love and care for him and for the other people involved. For whatever reason, it hit a nerve of fear and anxiety in him to such a degree that it was as if in a moment all of those years of friendship were undone. Almost immediately, he changed his mind about me. He decided that I was indeed not the person that he thought I was, and our relationship began to quickly deteriorate. He judged my person by my actions. Instead of being able to interpret the decision that I made through the lens of our personal relationship, it was very sad. It was very hurtful. It wounded me and him deeply. But here's the thing. We do the same thing with God. What he does or doesn't do becomes the evidence for what he's really like. A lot of times we put him on trial. We make our judgments. But that's the problem. They're just our judgments. Often they lack the proper perspective. At least they lack the perspective that God himself has on the things that he's doing. How could they not, given how big he is and how small we are? But the result of this is often a heart that becomes hardened towards God. Do you see that verse 8? This is the danger of doing this, is that if you're not careful, you wake up one day and you realize your heart has become hard. But think about the way this goes. Think about it for a minute. I decide for God what he should do. (laughs) I decide for God what loving me looks like. What he should do for me. Then when he doesn't come through the way I expected him to, then I get angry. Even though it was I who decided what he should do. And then because I'm angry, I shut my heart off and it becomes harder for me to trust him the next time. Or I just give up and I stop believing in him altogether. I think, ugh, yikes. And yet, it happens all the time. I've heard a story of a church in town years ago here in Winter Haven where a young person in the church got very sick. And uh, the pastor called the church together and uh, had a, you know, kind of like a word from the Lord kind of thing uh, to, that the church should, was to gather to fast and pray. And God told him that the boy would be healed, but only if the ch- whole church gathered and prayed all night long. And so the church came together and they prayed all night and all the next day. And even so, the boy died. And the church slowly withered until it closed not long after, and people became disillusioned and left the faith. Now, let me say, there's nothing wrong with praying that God would heal someone who's sick. We should do that. God tells us to do that. But if you make whether God heals or not a proof of his power or his goodness, be careful, you're headed for trouble. I know some friends years ago, when Ashley and I were young and having kids who had a terrible time getting pregnant, and they spent thousands of dollars on infertility treatments, and the doctors told them, you know, despite everything they did, that it was not very likely to happen, and their friends, and I know how sensitive this is, listen, their friends encouraged them to consider adoption, but they just, because they were, you know, in, with, in such grief, they refused uh, to, to listen and they kept doing the treatments. But what happened is that every negative pregnancy became an indictment. And they became more and more disillusioned. And they had a vibrant faith at the beginning, but by the end they were bitter and angry and had 
given up on, on God. Now, these are real griefs. I get it. I mean, why would God not grant them the child they so badly wanted? People ask pastors those kinds of questions all the time. And a pastor with any integrity would have to say, I, why would God not do that for them? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think we can know. There are times when we can't understand his works. But even in those times, we can know his ways. We live in a fallen world, and life is hard, and it will harden you. Your biggest hurts, your deepest wounds, your worst fears, they will talk out loud to your heart. And when that happens, this is what we've been saying, you, we have to learn the, the skill of talking back by interpreting what God is doing or not doing in light of what he has revealed of his person. You, all, you won't always have answers to the what and the why of these really difficult questions, but even though you may not know what or why God is doing what he's doing, you can know who it is that is doing it because God has made himself known. He has made that known, and that's what you have to hold on to. So Moses said there in that high point passage in Exodus 32, 33 and 34, he said, show me your ways. That's what he asked God, show me your ways. And it says that God passed before him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who God is. No matter what's going on, that's who God is. But here's the thing, if you start to believe bad things about God because he isn't doing things the way you want him to, can I say that again? If you start to believe bad things about God just because he isn't doing things the way you want him to, do you understand what that is? That's you putting God to the test. That's you putting yourself in God's place. That's you making yourself God. Tim Keller used to say that the difference between a person who is truly a Christian and a person who is merely religious is this, that the religious person finds God useful, but the Christian finds God beautiful. And putting God to the test is the fruit of religion. It is, you know, a religious person uses God to get what they really want. God is a means to some greater end, to a happy family or a standard of living. A Christian, though, worships and serves God because he's beautiful in his greatness and his goodness. He's not a means to some other end, knowing God and enjoying God. That is the chief end of man. And so the psalm would say to us first, beware the hardened heart that puts God to the test. But secondly, instead, what we're shown here is that we can, in fact, live not with this hard heart that is constantly testing God's works, but we can live from a deep rest that comes from trusting God's ways. See, when you test God, you measure his ways by his works. And a lot of time you end up with a hard heart. But to learn to trust God instead, you have to measure his works by his ways. In other words, you interpret your circumstances through the lens of your theology and not the reverse. Now, let me show you an example from the call to worship. If you have your worship folder and you look back there at that Psalm 36, verse 5, this verse has become so dear to me. It, while we were at Ben Beatty's wedding in, in Chattanooga in December, and in the church where the wedding was, there was a banner in the church with that verse on it, and I really can't remember much of the actual service, Brad and Amy. I'm sorry, because I was just so taken by that verse on the banner.
Vader and just my mind started to run. And in many ways, this whole series that we're doing is because of the 30 minutes that we were in that church for that wedding. I was just so, so blown away by just seeing that for the first time. And I've not been able to shake it since. Here's what it says. It says, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Your judgments are like the great deep. Now, four lines there. Do you see those four lines? Line A, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Line B, your faithfulness to the clouds. Line C, your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Line D, your judgments are like the great deep. Now, all of the language there describes, as Austin has already said, how big God is. Everything God is and does is big, bigger than you can possibly imagine or understand. But let's start with that last line, line D, where the psalmist there says, your judgments are like the great deep. Here's what that phrase means. It means, why does God do things the way he does? David there says, most of the time, we have no idea. His judgments are just too deep. There are too many factors involved. There are too many threads that are being woven together for us to possibly understand his wisdom. There's depth to God's reasons and to his wisdom. And we are, most of the time, forced to trust him without having all of the answers. That's just the posture of faith that we live in. But that line D, see, line D can be terribly difficult. Anybody anybody there? Isn't that terribly difficult to, to embrace that, to understand that that's just how life is lived? We have to live without the answers so many times. And line D is so hard. That's why you have line A, B, and C. And that's what struck me in that church in Chattanooga was, oh, I can live in the reality of line D because of line A and line B and line C. God's judgments are deep, and I don't understand, and it doesn't make any sense, and it seems wrong, but that doesn't have to be frustrating or scary. It can become a matter, actually, of adoration and wonder when you also know that even though his judgments are deep, his steadfast love extends to the heavens, and his righteousness to the clouds, or excuse me, his faithfulness to the clouds, and his righteousness is like the mighty mountains out west. His righteousness is as looming as Mount Rainier in Seattle on a sunny day. These words describe God's ways, his steadfast love. That means that God is never not loving. I know it's a double negative. God is never not loving. His faithfulness, God is unchanging. He is always true. His righteousness, God always gets it right. And if God is never not loving, and if he is unchanging and always true, and if he always gets it right, guess what? Then you can trust his ways. It doesn't matter if you understand his works. Psalm 95 also tells us something of God's ways. This is our text for this morning, so we probably should come back to it, actually. In fact, there, there is an incongruence between verses 1 through 7 and verses 8 through 11. And when you read it, it's so jarring that many scholars have concluded that it must be two separate psalms or at least two different authors. But I think it's brilliant and helpful because the way the incongruence there demonstrates the internal conflict we experience between faith and unbelief. It's a back and forth wrestling match sometimes. But here is why Psalm 95 says that you can trust God and not test him. Look at the way that the psalm is laid out here. If you would just walk through it with me for a minute. Um, beginning in verse 1, there is a call, there's a call to worship in verses 1 and 2. And then we're given the reason why we should worship God in verse 3 through 5. Come let us sing, 
Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. For the Lord is a great God. That for there is the reason. And then there's a second call to worship in verse 6. And then a second reason in verse 7. And that's the structure. So if you look there, Psalm 95 really gives us two things. It wants us to know two things about God's ways that should lead us to adoration and praise. First, that God is inexhaustibly great. Look there, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his. Everything's his. For he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. God is the biggest. And therefore he's worthy of our praise. But secondly, not only is God inexhaustibly great, it also says that he's a shepherd. So look there at the second reason in verse 7. It says, for he is, so it says again, it reiterates in verse 6, come let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our maker. For, verse 7, he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And so here we learn that God is attentive and caring towards our needs, that he is gentle and protective of us as his people. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He prepares a table before me. Beautiful language. One shepherd from the UK writing, reflecting on Psalm 23 says of his own work as a shepherd, it is my job to fret about my sheep's sheep's safety, which means, this is the way I wrote it in my notes, God frets over you. Then I thought, you know what, it's actually better than that. God doesn't fret. God has no reason to fret. So here's, I think, the truth. If God fretted, he would fret over you. (laughs) But the better news is that because he's inexhaustibly great, he never has to fret. But here's what it does mean. His love never fails. His love never fails. If something is going wrong in your life, if there is something hard you're walking through, if there is some great tragedy you face, you may not know the reasons for it, but the one thing you can be sure of is it is not a failure of his love for you. Now, that idea there of lying down in safety and contentment and feasting and abundance, all of that wonderful language in Psalm 23, that is what's meant by God's rest. Now, you notice it's the last word in the psalm there in verse 11. It's what the psalm leaves us with. It's what it leads us to, that state of being that we're pointed to. Those who live with hard hearts that test God's works, like that Exodus generation, they fail, we're told there, to enter into his rest. It's those who learn to trust his ways, they find rest. And rest there is first a state of mind. It's a quietness of soul. The prophet Zephaniah, in the beautiful language, describes God quieting his people their disquieted hearts, quieting the tumult of our, of our hearts with his love. And that, of course, if you can ever achieve that kind of way of being, it leads to a certain quality of life that is less, less anxiety, less drivenness, more contentment, more enjoyment of the small things, fewer up-all-night worry fests, more sleep, more smiles, living your life careless in the care of God, a life full of Sabbath days and a Sabbath lifestyle. And is those two things together, see? The Lord, my shepherd. The Lord, my shepherd. He is inexhaustibly great.
and inexhaustibly good. Now, we need to finish, but let me quickly review. You can test God's works, or you can trust his ways. You can look at God through the lens of your circumstances and live in constant danger of developing a hard heart, or you can look at your circumstances through the lens of your theology and find rest. You can know God. You can know his ways, First 10 alludes to, because God has made himself known. And that's such good news. He makes himself known in creation, in the scriptures, but most of all, most clearly, God has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. And I say this all the time, that in my darkest hours when I am the lowest, and, and believe me, there are days and seasons when I am the most disillusioned and the most tempted to doubt and the most discouraged and wanting to give up and walk away, it is the person of Jesus that is the light that brings me out of the darkness. That's why the person of Jesus study is so important to our church. Hebrews refers to Jesus Christ as the image of the invisible God, the radiance of his glory. Paul to Titus, which we'll read, I think, either this week or next in our community Bible reading, describes Jesus as the appearance of the goodness and loving kindness of God, as the grace of God in person, or Paul Miller's phrase from the book uh, that, that led to the person of Jesus say, love walked among us. And really, it's the beauty of the combination of his greatness and his love that get me. Because Jesus was powerful. He was full of authority. He was just bigger than life. I mean, there, you had a real sense that, that something more than just a man was in front of you when you were around him. He commanded evil spirits, and they obeyed. He touched his hands. It talks about God's hands here, and his hands were everything. In, in Jesus' hands, uh, evil, you know, in his hands, people who were sick were healed, and eyes that were blind were opened, and the dead came to life. And we went out on the lake with his disciples, and he spoke to the sea the way it talks about God doing here, and the sea calmed down. I mean, it's just incredible power and authority in his person. He had a commanding presence that overwhelmed the people. People bowed down in front of him to worship him. But at the same time, his person was incredibly compassionate. He looked at the crowds, and it says they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he taught them and he fed them and he loved them and he cared for their bodies and their souls and he called himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and in fact we know he did in dying upon the cross for our sins to reconcile us to God to remove the hostility that exists between sinful humanity and a holy God to correct all of our wrong ideas about God as life we we're meant to look at Jesus and see God. He, Jesus, came to serve and not to be served because that is what God is like. He left his glory, we're told in Philippians 2, and became nothing in an act of cosmic humility that is really unbelievable. Because again, that is God's way. There's this ancient heresy that pits Jesus against God. Like Jesus is compassionate and loving, but you know, God is cruel and vindictive. So, oh, we're so glad for Jesus. And that's not true. We can know God's ways because they're revealed to us in the person of Jesus. What Jesus is like, God is like. And it was Jesus himself who said and invites all of us, come to me. If you're weary, if you have the weight of the world on your shoulders, I will give you rest. Take my yoke Learn from me. Learn my ways. I'm gentle and lowly, and you'll find rest. So, so what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway? 
Charles Spurgeon said of Psalm 95 that when you read it, you can hear the church bells ringing as you read. I like that. He, you know the old church bells? Isn't it? Isn't it nostalgic if you're walking around Winter Haven at like 6.30 at night and First Baptist Church starts the bells ringing? It's just something just kind of, you know, gives you warm, warm, me anyway, it gives me warm fuzzies. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm old, who knows, but no, as you read Psalm 95, it is a call to worship. It's a call to worship, very clearly. So the question is, how do you keep your heart soft and not hard? You know what the answer is? You worship. How do you talk back when the voices of shame and fear start their jabbering in your soul? You come to worship. You show up. You sing the songs. And if you can't sing, you listen to the other voices declaring true things. And you add your own feeble, quiet amen where you're able. Psalm 95 is trying to lead us to a posture of humility, joy and humility. Because those, the two faces of unbelief are pride and fear. That's how you know it's going wrong in your life, is when you sense pride and fear in your life. So the psalm says in verses 1 and 2, Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Make a joyful noise. So there's joy. There's exclamation. There's noise. Our service should be characterized by all of those things. But then in the second call, in verse 6, it's, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. So there's humility. And reverence and awe, there's something about the worship of God's people that supernaturally and uniquely creates a mix of joy and reverence. It trains you in a way of life where there's joy and reverence that can make you rest. And that's why a key piece in living a Godward life, learning how to talk to your heart, is the simple act of showing up. Now, I know how self-serving this is, forgive me, but let me say, there is a I think, the more I think about this, the spiritual weakness in Christians that is so prevalent today is a direct result of being so casual about this gathering. So, obligatory, although it's packed this this morning, packed, Wade, you're popular, I guess, I don't know. It's packed today, but but obligatory midsummer reminder, church is important, come to church. We, we, I think, lack the spiritual vitality we're meant to live with because we're so casual about this gathering and our presence in it. The text leans in the opposite direction. There's an urgency. Look at how urgent the text says. It's just one word. Look there in verse 7. Look at it again. It says, today. You see that? Not tomorrow. Do you understand how much is at stake? There's so much at stake that it's like today, right now, this moment. Like right here, right now, in this moment before God. That's what the text is pointing us towards. Not tomorrow, not a week from now, today. You don't know what tomorrow might bring. You don't know how many tomorrows you might have. All you have is today. What are you going to do with today? What are you going to do with right now? What are you going to do with this moment? Because today, today could be a beginning. Today could be a turning point for the rest of your life. If you hear his voice today, here's what the text says. Please don't harden your heart. Instead, say with the hymn writer these words, the king of love my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. And that is the promise of the gospel, that in fact, we are his, and he is ours forever because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. So would you pray with me as we transition in our service? of so Father, in this moment, we do give you thanks that you indeed have so clearly and so powerfully and so once and for all reveals yourself to us that we as your people can truly trust 
your ways even when we do not understand your works. So help us, oh Father, come and keep us from a hard heart that would drive us away from you, that would drive us into our own pride and unbelief, and instead make our soft, our hearts soft with a vision, a beatific vision of your glory and your beauty. Would you do for us what you did for Moses, and we would pray like he prayed, Lord, show us your ways. Come in this moment and make your glory pass before us that we might know you, know you truly and know you personally, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Here's what I know. This week is going to be full of, I don't know, dozens, a hundred, hundreds, thousands of ways for you to become more, your eyes more open to the wonders of who God is, for you to know him more. But if you go from this place with an expectation of the way you think the next few days should go, then the prevailing mood of your life this week might be something like, wah, wah, you know? Otherwise, but what you need to know is what the promise of this benediction is, is that God is setting up your week for you here. He is saying this, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is going to be a week in front of you where the glorious light of his face is shining upon you, where his grace is being poured out upon your life. And if you know that, then you can embrace whatever might come, whatever works he might do or not do, knowing the truth about his ways towards you in Jesus. Receive this word of benediction, and may you go, oh, you know what? I'm doing the benediction. What am I doing, Wade? What the heck am I? Wade's sitting right there. Wade's supposed to do the benediction. Wade, come do the benediction. (laughs) Yeah, what he said, but I'll finish it. So receive this good word, this benediction, as you do with any gift, with joy and gratitude. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May he turn his face toward you and give you his peace now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.